Hey everyone, I'm your host Tom Shaughnessy and welcome back to Chain Reaction, a research-driven podcast that's a part of Delphi Digital. If you're not on Delphi's research portal, you're missing out on the critical analysis read by the top minds in the crypto space, so be sure to check it out. One quick housekeeping item, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. I may personally hold tokens mentioned on the podcast and you can view our show notes below for our complete disclosures. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Chain Reaction. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy. And today I have on Tyler Ward, who's the co-founder of Barnbridge. Tyler, how's this going? It's good. It's good. We've had a, a great week so far. <laughs> yeah, man. You've had quite the week. What you guys have like uh what was it, a hundred mil locked in your smart contracts, like a day in or something? Yeah, it's it's actually two hundred mil right now. I think on this call, like it's gonna hit two hundred mil. It's at like a hundred and ninety-nine. I'm watching it. Just tinker right on that edge. Yeah, I saw the first day. It's a. Uh, I'm sure you didn't sleep the day you uh, you guys launched, right? Uh, I don't think I've slept much in like a week, to be honest. I mean, I was more worried about like smart contract risk in the beginning, like uh, especially like when it hit a hundred mil. Uh, then like people started like really digging into the contracts and like making sure there weren't bugs and like it kind of like progressed where it started like in the community and then it got like all the way up to people that like are Ethereum OGs that like re- review their stuff. And like, even off the record, like auditors that work at other companies kind of coming in and being like, Hey, like, what does this function do? Like, what does that function do? And like, nobody's found anything. Like it's, it's definitely like the biggest, just like two day launch yield farm ever, like other than like products like Uniswap that, you know, existed a long time. So it's a new contract. Like we didn't fork synthetics code like a lot of the other yield farms did. Like we built it from scratch. Like, you know, Malad, Dragos, all them, they've been through this with like the Gnosis ICO and like the singular DTV and a lot of the consensus ones. So I think that I've gone from like a level of just like, holy shit, there's a lot of money in the smart contract. I'm like just concerned generally for like, you know, the people who have put money into it to getting more and more and more comfortable because you can't ever be like completely comfortable. Like, you know, like Ethereum had like the Byzantine hack, right? Like there was the DAO hack. So like, it's never like completely cool, but like, I feel like enough people have looked into it that I feel good. So like, it's been a mixture, right? Like, cause it's like on one hand, it's super exciting because it shows like the belief in Barnbridge and the belief in the product. But then on the other hand, like, you know, we're, we're, we're responsible, like if something goes wrong. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of been a mixture of like excitement and then like just anxiety, like looking at the numbers being like, holy shit, this is a lot of money. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I can't imagine, man. I mean, I barely sleep as it is and I'm, I'm not running a $200 million project or <laughs> a pool, right? But yeah. uh, Tyler, before we dive in, man, tell us a bit about Barnbridge. And I mean, just yourself, man, I mean, you go back pretty long way in crypto. I mean, you were one of the first employees at Consensus, I think, right? I think I was only an employee at Consensus for a month. I 
I worked, I mean, going back to like late 2016, early 2017, I really started to get involved with consensus. I did a lot with like Andrew Keys on the consensus capital side, which is why like when he went off to Dharma Capital, like we continued to work together. So, Andrew's the great guy. Nothing but respect for him. Yeah, like one one of the like best people in the industry. But yeah, basically I I mean I did a lot of the marketing and branding for consensus projects. I always had my own company proof systems where like I did consulting, like UI, UX, like marketing, community building for various projects. Um, so I worked like broader outside just the consensus ecosystem. Like I was working with like Earn in uh, Coinbase and then like a lot of projects in like Australia and Asia, like, you know, early stage derivative projects like Market Protocol. Um, I worked with like Near Protocol while they were going through their launch. So definitely, I think I have like a unique experience because of that, because like I had to read white papers and like figure out how systems were architected and like how like the UI and UX would work as well as like general positioning of the uh, products. And then also, uh, like I saw a lot of products, projects like fail for like good and bad reasons. Uh, and I also saw like projects succeed, right? Like I've been a pro uh, part of some very successful companies in crypto and I've been a part of some that like fell apart for the right and wrong reasons. So yeah, I feel like I have like a very unique like perspective on the industry because of that. It's like definitely helped with Farmbridge because when, I mean, we can get into the story later about like how I reached out to Kane and like how I came up with like the white paper over a year ago and where some of that stemmed from. But like by the time like Farmbridge happened and like the reason that we were able to execute so fast and like everybody's kind of like, where the hell did this come from? It's like, I've, I've done similar stuff like six, seven times. So like I kind of knew what to do and like who to get involved. And so I mean, like, I haven't done this exact thing before, but I definitely feel like I know what I'm doing more than like if someone just came in and was doing this the first time. No, I, I, that's awesome. And if we have time, I want to get into some of those stories and kind of what you've seen and why people have failed to be successful. Cause I think there's a lot of edge cases that are worth getting into. But back to Warmbridge specifically, the story with Kane was pretty interesting, right? You just basically cold email them with the idea, or how did that come about? Yeah, well, it actually came even, it, it goes back before that. So like Barnbridge was originally conceptualized in like April of 2019. And I wrote like a white paper. I was like essentially trying to raise, I was like talking to like Rakuten and like Japan who wanted like better risk management because like they were interested in moving into digital assets. But like their clients were interested, but like they were worried, like if this thing tanks, like our clients are going to get pissed at us. And then simultaneously, I saw like Andrew Keys trying to sell to like Ethereum to like massive groups like State Street. And I saw Mark Yusko trying to sell Bitcoin just to like traditional investment advisors all the way to like CalPERS. And basically, I realized like they had the exact same problem, like the volatility of the underlying asset was kind of scaring them away from taking large positions in in any crypto asset. And like not only was it not familiar, it's just like extremely volatile, right? So I came up with the concept with Barnbridge then. It it wasn't as baked out as it is now. Fast forward like August, 
I had made a decent amount of money um, off of synthetics. And this was like peak DeFi. I just personally wanted to move in and out of risk, like from a yield perspective and then an underlying asset perspective. <laughs> and I was actually like drinking. So I, barnbridge.io that I registered a year, uh, like in August of 2019, like I got the GoDaddy notification that it was up to expire. And at the time I was like, just drinking whiskey at my house. Like I wasn't like hammered, but like I, you know, had like liquid courage. So I emailed like Kane. I think I emailed Joe Lubin. I emailed like set protocol, Anthony. And I basically just said like, can someone steal this idea? Like, it's a good idea. Like I had like a six page white paper. Kane was obviously like the best one to steal it because he has synthetics and then like the synthetic assets that you could tranche out. <laughs> and actually, the only, I mean, I emailed Joe time to time to time and he always responds to me. The only person that responded to me out of everybody was, uh, was Kane. And he was essentially like, I'm not going to like steal your idea. Cause I said like, this is creative commons. Just take it. I'm running proof, you know, like we're doing well. I, I don't have time to run like a DeFi protocol. And so basically Kane wrote like a long email back. It's not just like, Hey, love your email or like, love the idea. Let's talk. Like, let me know how it could be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like he actually like started, like, uh, I mean, he, he wrote like an in-depth, like if it was on like a piece of paper, like it was like a solid page of, uh, just like how, like, how he would go about doing it, like how he would structure it. He even probably pushed the smart yield concept very early on where like I was really trying to push the smart alpha concept. And Kane was like, the industry needs like smart yield right now. They need like smart alpha long-term. So like, it was almost like in the first email, like he was just like working. Like he was just like, this is, this is what I would do. This is how I do it. And he said like, I don't have time to work on this. But, uh, you know, if you guys build it, this would be something I'm interested in funding. So I hit up Malad because like I'm, I was working with them on a, another project to build like a SaaS marketing software that I was building for my agency. And they're crushing. I mean, they, they just, they're such good developers that I was like, this is literally the only person in the industry that I think could actually build this that isn't working on something else that like has the reputation to handle something like this. And so like I got Malad involved. I started talking with like Troy because he was the one that really got me into synthetics that like paid, I mean, me and Troy put like a hundred K in because we had made a bunch of money investing in synthetics at like 30 cents in April. Um, Troy probably made a lot more than me because he was like, he was like last year. But long story short, Malad, uh, this Bogdan had just like quit working at Consensus and like Bogdan actually knew Kane uh, and had pitched him on some other idea previously. Dragos had just left Trium. Um, <laughs> so it was like the, the like stars aligned for Barnbridge. And then where a year ago, I was like trying to pitch everybody on this idea. And like, this was right when like MakerDAO hit hundred million dollars in TDL and uh, Hayden was, I, I went and saw him talk in New York and he, he had just done like $10 million of transactions on Uniswap. And like, I was thinking through the ramifications of like an automated market maker and like the types of uh, products you could structure with that where like, 
you can like trustlessly know that there's like going to be a liquidity pool. The liquidity pools weren't big enough back then because like you can't like structure products like $10 million. But I remember thinking like there's going to be more maker DAOs and somebody's going to have to organize the yield and they're going to have to, you know, have this automated market, this automated, automated market making tool in order to know that the liquidity is going to be there. So like, if you, you know, like this is a billion, $10 billion of these pools and there's, you know, three or four maker DAOs that have uh, more than a hundred million dollars of TDL you can actually start to create some like pretty cool products. But like back then people like were just like learning what DeFi was. They like weren't going to listen to me to be like, oh, if this grows and it's going to grow because uh, if it's only five basis points more efficient, all the money in the world's going to move to it. And there's going to be five maker DAOs and these pools are going to be huge. Like they're just like, this, this is a moon boy. Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. But like a year later, <laughs> I'm saying the exact same shit and everybody's like, yeah, we know, like, you, like, we know this already. And I'm like, all right, cool. So like now everybody knows like what this is and like why the market needs it. I've got a team that has built stuff like this before. Troy, who got me into synthetic. So I felt like I kind of owed it to him. And like, he had read all the pain stuff. He's like a God at like governance and building. I mean, we were like building DAOs with pain. I mean, with Troy, uh, over a year ago, like, um, in terms of like how you can use DAOs to like structure governance on a protocol and like have it be community distributed. So like we, uh, I mean, we had just seen like YFI come out around that time. So it was like a long time coming and how fast we got everything together. It was kind of a mixture between I've been planning this for a year and watching the market and then kind of got busy doing other things. And then the other side of it is, is like a lot of it was just serendipitous. Like, um, well, Tyler, it's awesome that you have the right, I mean, it's, it's a long time coming, but you also had all the right people involved, right? Like some projects are forced cause they just have to, you know, make people do things that just don't have a good fit. Like you, you have a dream team. Well, that's the serendipitous part is like, I mean, pre COVID, like I could have never built that team, right? Like consensus was raising $300 million and like, JP Morgan scrapped that deal because of COVID, right? Like they shut down deal making. Like all those people would still be at Singular, D I mean, at, at uh, either Singular DTV or Consensus. So it was serendipitous that like everyone was kind of slowly leaving and going to focus on DMOB at the exact same time. They like Kane, who invented like yield farming, like the godfather of like everything we're doing now in DeFi. It's like, yeah, like I, I want to do this, right? And then when I started introducing Kane to like all these people, he was like, who, who the fuck are these guys? Like they're legit where they come from. That's awesome. Well, Tyler, we got to dive into what Barnbridge is and the products you guys are offering before people get annoyed at me that we haven't gone over it yet. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So what Barnbridge is just conceptually is, I, I would start by saying that I started thinking about Barnbridge from the perspective of going back to like the Mark Yusko, Andrew Keys uh, component of like, how do you stop that like volatility and the underlying asset that is scaring these massive TradFi institutions away from just bringing any money into crypto, much less like the yield side. And that originally was what like kind of stemmed the thought process. But I also was thinking about 
like with what was going on a year ago or a year and a half ago with MakerDAO and uh, Hayden's Uniswap, I was starting to see like things that you can do with smart contracts that you can't do in traditional finance. And so I've always explained to people that I never really understood the value of Bitcoin. I'm not sure that I ever completely do or will. I don't like not believe in Bitcoin. I get it. But I immediately understood the concept of Ethereum as if you can write if-then statements into money, uh, that's very powerful, right? Like, so everybody says like Bitcoin, original white paper, peer-to-peer transactions with no intermediary. Well, Ethereum is peer-to-peer transactions that only transact if they do what you ask them to do programmatically, trustlessly, like that's crazy, right? Like then you can make money behave in a certain way without an intermediary. So like you can like read the contract before you even go into an agreement with someone, right? So the, the, that just that conceptually is mind blowing, right? But how that affects like money and credit and debt is way more mind blowing. How it affects derivatives, like just, melt your face mind blowing right but just with debt alone the reason that i knew that maker dow that there were going to be numerous maker dows and this was going to grow is because you're basically cutting out so much stuff like escrow arbitration settlement like disputes it's all written into the contract for a loan so like if the money doesn't get <laughs> paid then x is returned right um so when i really started to think about uh, how that would affect like debt markets at the aggregate. I was like, even if this is like five basis points more efficient, then it's essentially like all debt is going to move to the blockchain long term because like five basis points of efficiency in a $200 trillion industry of like assets, much less like the trading volume, that's, that's insane, right? Like five basis points matters and it's not five basis points like more efficient. It's substantially more efficient. So, I mean, I've been gung-ho DeFi for a long time, but where BarnBridge came from was really just this merging concept of what can these smart contracts do that, like, what types of products could you make that you can't make without smart contracts? And that's really the approach that I took with BarnBridge to kind of think through, like, well, if I could program it, then statements into money, like, what types of financial products would I actually create, right? And so that was just like the basis of like how I got here. But where I also started probably like expanding on that was I just got to like the very like fundamental root of how does like an asset change in price, right? Like I have a finance degree. So like in college, they taught me it's the future value of cash flows. So that can be yield, that can be rent, that can be dividends, um, like market rents go down in an area, well, the real estate's going to go down. And that affects like the base uh, price. And so when I, back in like 2012, I was selling fixed income debt. And at that time, I was working for a subsidiary of JP Morgan. They used non-positioning brokers at the time because they didn't like want the industry to know they were moving out of this position from 2008 that took them four years to even figure out what was in this asset that they owned. And so I would like reach out to big hedge funds and uh, bulge bracket. Uh, like they, they knew I was working for one of the big firms or working with them. 
And so I was just working with people that were just thought they were smarter than like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. And so I really started to understand like how complex some of these uh, products are and just like how crazy some of the structuring was on these products that, that you get into. And so with like this whole concept of like all the money is going to move on, on blockchain or all the debt's going to move on blockchain and what types of products can you create that couldn't exist before on one end of the equation, um, getting back to where I was a second ago, basically the underlying asset is going to change because of the future value of cash flows. That's that essentially is what we created with the smart yield product. And that's how TradFi does this, right? Like they essentially have MBS, CDOs, uh, CLOs, all sorts of ways that you can group and de-risk and restructure uh, the risk that like one asset isn't going to get paid back or uh, you have swaps where essentially like you restructure the income stream. So like that exists in TradFi, right? Um, it's not like something that is massively uh, innovative that someone said like, okay, let's like take this and put it on the blockchain, right? Like that's what we had in 2017. Uh, essentially like, uh, let's take the Uber, put it on the blockchain. Okay, cool. You raised $50 million. So like the concept of putting like these complex structurings on chain, isn't it like inherently uh, a good thing? but the ability to track them downstream is. So all of the different ways, like where you think about like DeFi completely expanded or extrapolated, uh, you're essentially going to have like derivatives of derivatives, derivative squared, derivative 64s. Um, they'll be in this like gamified interface, like Uniswap. It's like very easy to interact with and trade and very easy to essentially see on, on chain what's going on. There will be like visualization software it's brought to market where like like Zapperfy, but like an institution and like how all their debt is traded across the ecosystem. So like I personally thought that someone would have built Smart Yield by now. Like I'm a little bit ashamed of the industry that like they were off like forking yam um, and not like building this type of a product. But like this product is super necessary uh, for the industry to be able to move in and out of like the the yield fluctuations or yield sensitivity or like the chances that rent drops or whatever doesn't get paid back. That aspect of smart contracts, again, way more efficient. However, what I also started thinking about, and this is probably the bigger part of Armbridge, long-term at least, is I started thinking about like the individual asset, right? So like people back then were talking about like fractionalized real estate. And I remember thinking like, Okay, so like, I mean, with block, I mean, you can track like down, assuming infinite liquidity, like you could track down to like what's the yield of a piece of wood on a house, right? Like, but like nobody's going to do that. But just like to really extrapolate like the concept of like fractionalized real estate, like you could, you know, buy into like something based on whether you thought like steel prices were going to move. And so what I also was thinking about, though, kind of like bringing it back a little bit, is that in looking at crypto, like there is no yield, right? Like, so what like Mark and Andrew were having uh, difficulty selling this to TradFi, like there is no like coupon for Bitcoin, like Ethereum's not a productive asset yet. So like, why are these assets 
so much more volatile than other commodities because like they're being called commodities. But like gold doesn't have a coupon and it has an underlying price. Silver has a doesn't have a coupon, oil, et cetera, et cetera. So there's still something that they didn't really teach us in school of like what why do people essentially, you know, value these things outside of just like scarcity? So like there's scarcity, there's utility, and then there's just like FOMO, which like, you know, there's not models built on that for gold, but like they they exist. Like it's the same as crypto. It's just not as volatile of a form. So I started thinking about in the same way that you could structure risk downstream from a yield perspective, the other component of what would affect um, of assets underlying price uh, is just alpha, right? Like you either have $10 of uh, the, the easiest way to describe the smart alpha product is that you can take an Ethereum and say that an Ethereum is worth $100 just for simple math. You put that into a smart contract and you break it out into two new proofs of liquidity uh, for that Ethereum that are 50 bucks and 50 bucks. Well, if the Ethereum goes to $110, uh, then you have $10 of positive alpha. If it goes to 90, you have negative $10 of, of alpha. So what you can essentially do is you can be like, all right, well, this asset that's the junior tranche or the high-risk tranche of Ethereum gets 70% of the upside and downside volatility. The senior tranche gets 30% of the upside and downside volatility. So you've now essentially created two new digital assets that could trade on an aftermarket that represent low-risk ETH and high-risk ETH. And then like that alone is crazy because like people would just be like, why didn't you just like put you know $30 into ETH then? And it's like because it won't trade as its own asset that you can essentially put back into all of these lending protocols that essentially represents uh, what that collateral essentially looks like. So like you can go into a loan with a over collateralized or under collateralized asset. And then on the leverage side, you can essentially buy directly into an over uh, like an under collateralized position without being able to get to the other side of collateralization. So like you can't rob the smart contract. Like if uh, if if Ave, for instance, let people borrow two ETH for every you know, $1 worth of USDC, well, people just wouldn't pay it back and they just keep the ETH. That's why like under collateralization doesn't exist in crypto. But if you create these types of products, you can, and then you can use them in all of the lending ecosystems because you only have the proof of liquidity for the $50 that you put in, but the return could be different. And so the types of products and derivatives that you can build when you have those two base layers of how a market, how the market price of a um, asset can fluctuate, then I mean, ass- again, assuming infinite liquidity, the opportunities are endless in how you could structure derivatives on chain. And like that is an idea that you can't do in TradFi. Like you cannot do it without smart contracts. All right, let's. Uh, geez, a lot to unpack there, man. I really appreciate the detailed overviews of both products. And um, I guess I'm just wondering on your last point for the smart alpha product which is your second product on the site, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you have fractional ownership, you have different risk rewards for the fractions, but your example, like from the one ETH and tranching that between 50 and 50, do you think, is this actually a retail product though? It, it seems to me like this would be more suited for somebody that wants to 
you know, for for a hundred ETH or thousand ETH or something larger? Like, do you envision the smart alpha product for retail or more the institutional crowd? Um, so I think it will be used for uh, the institutional crowd, but I think both like will exist. So let me kind of explain it. So first of all, I just use like one ETH as an example. But, like they're going to be like pools, like Uniswap, right? So like almost all the DeFi is like constructed off of pools. Like all of these things that we're creating are pools that have like if then statements like written into them. So like when I say like a smart contract, I'm talking about like a smart contract that exists as like a pool of money, right? So essentially you would have like a pool of money and then you would like sell off the the senior risk. Um, So like there's a junior pool that either just represents the asset uh, and then you sell off the risk to the to the senior pool. So it's definitely going to be like massive, massive amounts of like Ethereum in order to make it efficient. And that's what I mean by liquidity. Uh, so like when I say liquidity, I mean like, you know, one ETH versus a billion dollars worth of ETH. With that type of like with a billion dollars worth of ETH, you can start to get more creative in how you structure the the smart alpha product. Like it may not just be senior and junior like you can start to introduce like mezzanine tranches that can do extremely creative things um but i think it will be used for both getting to the other part of the question and so the way that i think that tradfi will use it where you know it fixes the underlying problem that mark and andrew were having where they don't want to just buy 30 percent bitcoin and then sit 70 percent in cash the advisor essentially is like going to have to go back to the client and they're going to be like, well, you know, just give me my $70 back, 70% of my dollars. Like I'm not paying you a, a fee to manage money that way. But if they're actually like taking positions and moving in and out of these, cause I said like 70, 30, but it can also be 60, 40, it can be 10, 90. So they can actually like move in and out of risk on these and still be taking a position. And when they like go back to their client, they're like, look, we were playing in digital assets like you asked me to because you were interested. But as like Bitcoin dropped from 10,000 to 5,000, I protected your downside volatility because I was using uh, like risk tranches, right? Um, so like, absolutely. I think that it like fills a massive need for TradFi where TradFi is like, when I say TradFi, I'm talking about the side of TradFi that is managing money for other people, not necessarily like the debt structure inside like JP Morgan. Tyler, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, I know it's like, we all know them from like watching the big short or something, but basically tranching risk into different tranches is extremely important for, for the real world, right? Like it's, it's makes a lot of sense and people want it. And there's different class of investors that are looking for different things. Let me expand on the retail side real quick, because I think retail will use it too. And the reason is, is if you could log into an interface like uh, Coinbase, for instance, or just FarmBridge, and you can essentially just buy low-risk, high-risk ETH, a company like Coinbase, like that's extremely valuable for people that are just flirting with the space, right? Like they don't have to buy Bitcoin. They can essentially like teach them what this is and they can like flirt with it and then start at like a 10% risk tranche and move all the way up as they like learn more and more. Right. So even just as like an onboarding tool, like this is super useful to get like retail into crypto. But then on the other side of the equation, if you look at what Kane has with synthetics, like synthetic Tesla, synthetic Apple, uh, synthetic gold, synthetic oil, right. 
Like now you're talking about like absolutely creating things that don't exist that like fidelity could integrate with to do the exact same thing that I'm talking about with, uh, with what Coinbase would do, right? Like you can essentially onboard users into like equity assets. You can have, you know, people in the Middle East managing their oil contracts. You can essentially have people that want to move out of a gold position. Like it, I mean, this, this has the potential to fundamentally change finance and how risk is managed. And again, you couldn't do it without smart contracts. No, that's a, that's a really good point. You're right. And it's kind of funny. It hasn't been made yet right? to your point, but Tyler, just switching over. Cause I want to make sure we have enough time to yeah. get into it. Can you kind of just dive in for a bit on the smart yield product? Like I'd love to kind of learn like the flow of actually how that works, like from start to finish for investors. Yeah, absolutely. So same concept where almost all of these DeFi products are pools. When someone introduces like fixed yield in crypto, I 100% expect that like Aave and then Compound and Maker will all eventually offer like fixed products, right? What BarnBridge really allows you to do that's a little bit different than just doing it on one platform is similar to like a YFI type model or like a Rari bull where like you have these robo-advisors that are like, moving in and out of uh, positions, you can essentially like set up like a trading platform almost where there's all of these synthetic assets that represent the yield stream from MakerDAO, the yield stream from Aave, the yield stream from something like a Rarible or a Harvest or like we can essentially take like yearns uh, y, uh, YFI's like strategies to maximize yield. And then we can split them out into a lower risk fixed yield version of those maximized versions and then a higher risk variable, right? So like if you believe that interest rates are going to go up, then you sit in the variable pool, the fixed pool gets sold off. And then you're essentially, if, if interest rates go up like you're expecting, then you're actually going to get more money than just investing directly in Aave, right? So like, I can't go on Aave and bet on the upside that interest rates are going to go up by uh, selling off some of the fixed rate where I get the variable upside in return, right? So like, you can start to kind of game theory and play around with all of these different protocols and restructuring the income streams. The same like when, you know, fractionalized real estate comes into the industry, you can play around with like the, the rents. Uh, when synthetics equities pay dividends, you can play around with those. So basically like FarmBridge won't exist as a protocol that like does borrowing or lending. We're essentially just integrating with all of these other protocols and pulling in the yield and then allowing you to restructure what risk point do you essentially want to have? Maybe you think interest rates will go up uh, and that's what you want to bet on. Maybe you're like, I don't really know. I just want to lock in a fixed income stream because I have this other financial planning component that I essentially need to do, right? Like I've got another loan sitting on Aave and I want to know that like I lock in this income stream to pay that down so that I can like unlock this at a, fu at a future date. And like, that's why fixed income is so popular is because you can actually use it to do like real financial planning. Got it. So Tyler, just to recap. So basically you have a pool of money, let's say a million dollars. That money could normally be put into like one platform, like a compound or an Aave, but instead you guys are putting it in 
multiple different platforms. So Compound, Aave, DDX, BZX, DYDX, whatever, whatever you can for different tokens. And then what you're doing is you're then breaking that up into different tranches, like a senior tranche with a low yield, like a, a mezzanine tranche with, with a moderate yield, and then like a junior tranche, which is riskier, but has a much higher yield. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? Yeah. And actually, so just to kind of expand on that a little bit, they'll exist like on the platform uh, as their own proofs of liquidity, just like the smart alpha product. So you'll be able to trade in and out of risk positions across all the platforms, right? Like you can trade from like a variable tranche in one, you can close out your position by buying a fixed tranche in another one. We, I think we're just going to start with like variable, I mean, uh, senior and junior, but same with the alpha product, the mezzanine, like assuming infinite liquidity, you can create infinite structurings. The types of things you can do with mezzanine debt uh, with smart contracts attached to it and making them behave a certain way. That's where like long-term we'll be able to get like extremely creative, but just to keep it simple for the industry, I think we just keep it fixed and variable. But the difference between like what we're creating and like where Abe says they're going to, you know, introduce fixed and variable is they they are going to have their own proof of liquidity. They're on a platform that can be like paired up uh, with other platforms. And then you can start to actually create strategies off of it, right? Like you can be like, all right, well, if I lock in this fixed interest rate on harvest, then I can take a YOLO bet on this one uh, because like I know that I'm essentially still going to have my collateral to pay back from this like harvest fixed loan uh, that I need for this other thing that I'm over collateralized on. So like you can actually start to like take arbitrage opportunities. And so what that's actually going to do is it's going to normalize the risk across the market. So like right now we ha- we have these like arbitrage opportunities. You can like go borrow on compound, lend on another one, and then essentially like, you know, have these areas where like the risk isn't paired up properly. Well, like this basically creates a platform that normalizes all of the risk across the ecosystem. And then each one of these projects are going to have to like adjust because there should theoretically be a lot of liquidity coming into those platforms from Barnbridge. And like if we pull off of one because there's no demand because there's this massive RBOP, well, then they're going to have to drop interest rates. So it's actually like in a, you know, I don't want to like sound like too crazy, but like Barnbridge will make the entire, like at scale, if it works, it will make the entire ecosystem more normalized and like allow the entire ecosystem to manage risk better. That's incredible. And Tyler, one other question for you there, and apologies if you answer this, I may have missed it, but how are all of these tranches and breakups kind of decided, right? Like, is it formulaic where some percentage goes into the variable amount, some doesn't, the fixed amount? Like, I'm just wondering who's kind of deciding how to cut all of these portfolios up. So Barnbridge is a DAO, like we went DAO first. So like the DAO will handle uh, everything on the protocol and it's a community managed protocol. You know, 68% of the tokens are going to the community. 10% is going in the treasury. And we essentially took like 22% for like the team, the seed, the advisors. So like whatever I tell you could be like changed in the future, right? So like we, I think at first, because of the way that the distribution of tokens is going to happen, we'll have a lot of the voting rights. Um, and like we like strategically brought on into our seed round, like people who have backgrounds in 
like MBS structuring. So like fourth revolution capital, like I have a background in like finance. Santiago from Parify is like a genius and like worked at JP Morgan. And then we also like have like the Canes and, and Stanis to basically help us on the, the tech side as well. But just from like a financial modeling perspective, we probably will introduce like and be able to somewhat manage like the platform and like kind of set the precedent for like how how these things should be structured. But like long term, there's going to be one of two scenarios. Either the, the community is going to vote that the actual pool that creates the liquidity sets the rules. And if they set shitty rules, there will be no liquidity in the pool. If they set great rules, there will be a bunch of liquidity in the pool. Um, that probably may be better like long, long term, because then you really are getting at the, the essence of like market driven everything. But the DAO can change anything about the protocol that they want. So like a lot of people ask me about like tokenomics and staking and how we're going to like share fees on the platform. And it's like, I mean, whatever we say, like if the community is really pushing for something, they're going to like get what they want. So like, if you want to stake fees on a platform and share it, like eventually I'm not going to be able to stop that. Like it's probably not a good look in the beginning. So the answer to that question is, I think in the beginning, we're going to have a lot of control over how it works, but over a two-year period, we will have no control over how it works. And I think that that will result in market-driven pricing. Awesome, man. No, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah, you want the community to come around and push for, for what they want. And Tyler, another question for you is just back to the kind of the token and the amount you've kind of amassed in your pool so far. Like you have 200 million that people are using to kind of yield farm your token, but how do you make that productive, right? Like, how do you transfer that into value creation, the protocol? Like, is there a plan to kind of potentially, you know, use that to you know, bootstrap your first two products? Or, or I guess just kind of how are you thinking about that whole dynamic? Well, that $200 million is uh, just to distribute the token. So like where like Satoshi used proof of work uh, to essentially distribute the token, um, where you had to have like mining rigs and like understand how the technology worked. Ethereum, same thing, early stage. Uh, now they're moving to proof of stake. Like our distribution method, what yield farming is, is uh, it, yield farming is one of two things. It's either a distribution method or it's uh, a liquidity premium, uh, premium that you give to people that bring, like you want to incentivize early liquidity on a platform so you can structure products with it. So what we're doing right now is uh, the essence of it is instead of using like getting people to mine our token. I mean, I try to explain to like my wife and my mom that like you're just giving away all of the tokens on your platform. It's like, no, I'm making people prove that they have capital, right? And they fairly get it where $1 is worth a dollar. And a lot of people get very mad that they're like, well, it's just going to be like a bunch of whales in the pool. And it's like, look, we need liquidity on the platform. So it, it's fair. If you have $10,000 to put in, your $10,000 is worth just as much as a rich person's $10,000. We didn't give them a preference. We gave the seed stage a preference, right? But our actual distribution is not an ICO where you have like a pre-seed, a pre-pre-seed, a seed round, and then it goes to market and you get dumped on by like people that got this essentially like cheaper rounds. They're like, well, the whales are just going to mine it all up and they're going to dump it. It's like, well, so uh, there's no difference between a, a whale and retail in this situation, right? Like 
the the smaller players in the space they can dump too and if you get enough of them to dump then uh that can have a effect on the price so like we're I think that the 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 industry has this like la- like disdain for VCs um, because I think that like the VCs are dumping. But if you use like barn like the way we went to market, we're basically just saying, look, everybody's equal. This is fair. You have more money, then you have more money, but your dollar's still worth a dollar. And like that was our like you know proof of work. We used proof of capital, and the reason that we use proof of capital is because right now, yes, like if you want to call it giving away the tokens, like we're giving away the tokens, if you can kind of mine them by proving capital and you're locking it up in the system, there's opportunity cost, it could go somewhere else. There's obviously smart contract risk. So we're having people put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they're not getting it for free. There's absolutely risk that they're paying with um, in the same way that you pay for proof of work with like energy, right? And mining. Um, and so outside of like the distribution method that we're going through right now, the number one thing that like we needed to do was get the token distributed so that the community can start making some of these decisions for a lot of different reasons. I mean, from a, a regulatory perspective, who knows what they're going to say in seven months, like if you can even do this type of stuff, same with like Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Like they got distributed and then uh, we kind of like figure out how it works later. So like the way I look at it, is if I can like give this to the world and like I'm not in charge of it anymore, then you know like let the world decide what they want to do with this. It, it's it's software, it's code. Um, there, I, I don't see anything like inherently wrong with that. But on the other end of the equation, uh, the money that's in the protocol right now, the reason that we uh, didn't fork synthetics like staking contract and we built a yield farm from scratch with stable coins was twofold. Like A, we're a risk management platform and the impermanent loss risk of having like an ETH die pool is way more. So I just wanted the only risk to be the bond token risk. So you can literally just put dollars on the platform uh, and you don't have as much, you have no impermanent loss risk in the the first epoch, right? Um, So like some people, and then you basically take the, the bond and you put it into the liquidity pool on Uniswap to give uh, liquidity to the platform, like the people who got in early, they they didn't really take a massive risk outside of opportunity costs. So like, I don't want them taking on an additional risk of ETH, right? Like ETH has has nothing to do with with the early stage of this product other than it's built on it. I'm talking about like ETH the asset. But um, the reason that we also wanted people to uh, be in stable coins is most of the yield and yield sensitivity in the industry is around stable coins, right? Like you go on Aave sometimes and like dies at like 70% APY, go on sometimes and it's at 1%. Like that doesn't happen with you. It's always at like a half a percent, right? So um, in terms of like structure and yield sensitivity, it'll most likely be stables that uh, go into the smart yield product. And so what we're hoping is that like the distribution leads up to the product release uh, and at that point, hopefully there's still a lot of money in these pools that will then move into providing liquidity uh, for the actual product, right? Um, so like the first like smart yield products will mostly be stable coins. I would assume the first like smart alpha products are going to be like ETH DAI and RAP BTC or REN BTC pairs will probably be like the uh, REN BTC DAI pairs. Uh, will be the most popular products out of the gate. So like 
you know, we'll provide uh, liquidity uh, preferences for that. And there will be impermanent loss in those pools. So basically, that's like why we went about kind of doing everything the way that we did and why we went with a stable uh, pool. It wasn't like just for impermanent loss. It also is because we, you know, there's $200 million on this platform. There's $500 million in a couple of weeks. We launch a product. Well, hopefully that $500 million flows into our product and we have $500 million of liquidity and we can structure cool products with that $500 million of liquidity. So that was like the thought process of everything from like soup to nuts of go to market and like our philosophy around governance and everything rolled into one. Awesome. And Tyler, my last question for you, um, because I've had you on a while, I know you got to get back. What what's like next on the roadmap for you guys? Right. Cause I know that there, I'm not sure exactly what the timeline is. I think it is a couple months going out for the products, but I wasn't sure I wanted to clarify with you what's next. Yeah. I mean, we've already been building them a, a bit. Uh, there's, I mean, with all of this stuff, the devil's in the details. So like we're, I would, we're definitely launching in Q1 um, hopefully earlier. Cause like we we're in the process right now. So the, the first thing that we're going to release is like these uh, yield farming pools. Uh, once there's bond, there will be Uniswap liquidity pools. We're not like talking to Binance, like just if you want liquidity for the bond token, like there will be liquidity on Uniswap and you can trustlessly trade in and out and, and take positions or sell positions. So that like we're incentivizing liquidity for the actual token. The, that will all roll up into us releasing the DAO. And we're looking at like, into a lot of the mechanics of like what Curve and Mstable did. Cause like we have a launch DAO that's built on Aragon, uh, but that's like not the long, like we're building a DAO from scratch. Um, well, I mean, like there's open source that we're going to model it off of. But basically, like our DAO is going to have to be different than other DAOs because it's actually going to, you know, pro, uh, manage a different type of product than other DAOs have up to this point. So the DAO and the smart yield will release at the same time, uh, probably like early Q1. That then the bond token can actually be used like on the DAO to like vote, change things about the protocol. Um, and then I would say like given the hype, it's probably changed a little bit that I do think that the smart yield product will be pretty popular. And then we'll have a lot of like bugs to fix and like feature requests. So um, we we probably got to like add people to simultaneously build the smart alpha product uh, in parallel because I think we were originally planning on you know not everybody in the industry knowing who we were and we could build one and then build the other and like kind of grow it slowly over time. But this is a good problem to have, but that's not that's not the case anymore. So um, if there's five hundred million dollars on the smart yield platform. That's a full-time, you know, dev team. We're going to need more people to build the other components. So that actually will probably speed up the timelines. But you know, it is what it is. We're we're pumped about it, but that's the case. No man, congrats, Sar. I think it's I think it's awesome that you kind of had this idea in mind, reached out to the right people, kind of had a dream team, and now you're getting you know kind of validation as people you know flow into to farm, but also as you you know, create your go-to-market and release these products. And it's, it's interesting. It's exciting to see, man. And obviously I'm going to be following along. So I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on today. Yeah, absolutely. I did it as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tyler, thanks so much, man. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll definitely chat soon. Yeah, man. It's always a pleasure. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on iTunes, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our next episode out soon.